Good morning. Yeah, I've done too much crying up here the last couple times. Um, but to give you kind of a brief uh, update to let you in on kind of what has been going on with the Barber family the last probably two years is, so I I'm, went to Covenant Theological Seminary, same seminary as Mark, woot woot. Uh, and so it's always been pressing on me, I've recognized that um, with an MDiv there's responsibility. And so as I've been teaching at the Stony Brook School, basically every two years I do a really deep kind of prayerful, like, is it time for me to head fully into ministry and kind of open that door? One of the things that has been interesting about that process is as Jess and I walked through it is we consistently felt like and that we were called kind of to a demographic more than anything, which is young students. Uh, so I know like we, we spent some time talking about the church plant in Stony Brook and like, is this kind of the thing for us? And more and more, we just felt like, I think God really has us targeted towards Gen Z. So pray for me earnestly. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and we, so we began exploring that. The, the middle cops were unbelievably gracious and helpful in advice and as we began feeling things out and processing. And we did, so RUF is Reformed University Fellowship. It's a campus ministry. What I love about Reformed University Fellowship, it's, a, it's the campus ministry of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, I love that um, there's so many good campus ministries, but it is directly connected to the church in a way that a lot aren't. Um, and so we went to RUF assessment um, and they liked us a lot and wanted us to, to consider some things and consider moving forward. And it's been one of those things where I feel like I've given God every possible out, you know? Uh, I was ridiculously transparent in my assessment form, uh, try, you know. I reread it recently. It was like, I can't believe I said that. Um, so, but at every point, God has been really encouraging and, and, um, and yeah, encouraging to us on this. So where we are now and uh, what's up next for us is, well, first, uh, grace means a lot to us uh, very much. Um, it's been such a lovely place to be. I'm so grateful. One of the things I'm really grateful for uh, that you might not see or observe is I've gotten so much genuine loving feedback and not even you know some of it has been hard but good to hear uh, I can't tell you how much of a gift that is um, yeah when it's evident that somebody comes to you and even when it's hard it's something like I love you and I love the church and that's why I'm having this conversation with you it means so much um, so even going through RUF assessment um, it was evident that, like, you know, we had tossed that around after seminary, but we're different people now than we would have been, and a great deal of that has to do with grace and the love y'all have shown us and the opportunities we've had here. So just unbelievable gratitude for you all. Um, yes, and I view kind of going out and ministering other places is a way in which y'all are also ministering. So, um yeah, Grace will be ministering to 50 to 80 uh, college students at a campus in Chicago. Um, if you think about it and have some prayers for us, uh, want to pray for us, firstly, be praying for those 50 to 80 students. Um, I'm really excited to meet them. I'm going to get a chance to do that in May 
the pastor who's heading out has done a fantastic job. I've had good conversations with him that have made me feel really good about it, stepping into that role. So pray for those students, that their hearts are softened, and that uh, I'm, I'll be stepping in for a guy who's really competent and really good uh, so that they will, you know, trust me at least a little bit, um, give me the benefit of the doubt. We have to go to North Chicago and appear before a committee in um, the mid-May. That's probably next up for us. Um, there will be, it's a fundraise position. There will be support opportunities, and I'll, I'll communicate, send an email or communicate with you guys ways you can be praying for us and thinking about us as we do that. But, yeah, um, so we love you all. Uh, feel free to ask tons of questions. Um, Jessica loves answering questions. So especially, <laughs> especially Jessica. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so a sermon. So let's do this. Um, go to I, I, Mark. Just gave me the watch look. Like you're going to do this, right? <laughs> let's go to uh, go to Matthew five. Well, we'll start in Matthew four. Thankfully, this one is a little shorter. So there you go. Uh, we have been going through the Beatitudes, which, as I mentioned before, was this thing I thought I was going to laughably do in only a couple of messages. Not true. So today we are looking at. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, but I'm going to read the whole thing to get there. But we're going to focus in on, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's just jump in, read, starting in Matthew 4, 23, and we'll get to it. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount every time it is read. And he preaches that you preach it to us here today, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I assume that many of you have probably seen the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I grew up, my primary connection with Wizard of Oz is I knew the flying monkeys really scared my dad. That's about all I got on it. Uh, so when famous movie routinely listed in the top 100 best films, have to see it before you turn a certain age, et cetera, et cetera. When the movie came out, it barely turned a profit, actually. It wasn't this kind of uh, big phenomenon. It was actually when it was re-released in 1956 on television that 
it began to gain this massive following. At this point, it's been called the most seen film in history, and a lot of its songs you know instinctively somewhere over the rainbow, we're off to see the wizard. Songs that kind of fall in that category of you can't remember a time before you had it running in your head. The story's pretty simple. Uh, a young woman named Dorothy who lives in the Midwest is hiding in a house when a tornado picks up her house and ships her off to a fantastic land with witches and flying monkeys. Uh, at the center of this, is more than that, but at the, at the center of this story is the Emerald City where the great Wizard of Oz lives. And Dorothy is told early on in her adventures that the wizard, the one who can bring her back home. So she begins on her journey and she picks up several different travelers and all with their own needs, and they search for this wizard because they feel a lack in themselves in some way. They have no home, they have no courage, they have no heart, they have no wisdom, and they hope that the wizard will solve these problems. And when they finally meet the great Wizard of Oz, they run into the truth. Uh, there is no wizard. It's a big illusion. And that uh, while they come in and there's this large head and thundering smoke and all this, there's really a man behind the curtain pulling all the levers. The movie paints this as uh, actually a good thing for them, kind of progress. See, you didn't lack all these things. You had it inside of yourselves all along. But as a kid, even before I could name it, I always thought the ending made me pretty sad. The main characters went out searching for something bigger and transcendent, and they just found themselves. I thought that seemed kind of lonely. I think we've seen enough to know that this is kind of actually a depressing and lonely storyline. We can try to dress up this like total freedom that it seems to promise as a positive, but I think depression rates and cultural despair and all that show that kind of saying just do what you want or just do what makes you happy can actually be its own form of oppression. I have a lot of students for whom just do what makes you happy has not been a freeing sentiment. But this isn't just a problem for people who, uh, who you know, maybe don't believe in God. As Christians, I think sometimes we can live a life that looks more like the Wizard of Oz than a Christian journey. We can commit to following Christ, but then run off on our own living as if Really, there's probably just someone behind the levers, behind the curtain pulling the levers. Christianity, maybe in the end, is just a journey to find more of yourself. But here's the big, <laughs> horribly kept secret of the scriptures. The world's enchanted. We're not alone. We're not trying to build out good person resumes. We are trying to be united with the divine. And that divine promises that he will be found. Here's the big point I want us to take out of the door today. We pursue righteousness when we pursue God. That may sound really simple, but it's actually, it's actually pretty meaningful, and we're going to sit on it. We pursue righteousness when we pursue God. So, in light of that, I want to ask three questions today. One, what does Jesus mean when he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What does he mean by righteousness? Two, how is this a challenge for us? And three, how is this a comfort? How is this good news? So let's start with number one. What does righteousness mean? When Jesus comes, one of his primary opponents, who just really do take a beating in the scriptures, are the Pharisees. Uh, and by all displays in their time, they are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They have all these rules set up that will help them be righteous people. People look up at them like they are very morally right and mature, 
and most people in the audience would associate them with super holy, super zealous people. But in this same sermon, just a little later, Jesus is going to say to a crowd full of people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Good gracious. <laughs> that's a heavy thing to say. And for a crowd that's sitting there thinking the Pharisees are the best, and he goes, hey, look, if you're not more righteous than those guys, then forget it. That would feel like a crushing blow. So what's going on here? And if you're a good Presbyterian, this line should make you a little uncomfortable. Uh, one of the things that I hope that we're really good at is when we hear about righteous, we tend to think about legal righteousness. Read Romans and the letters from Paul. We've sung about it this morning. And legal righteousness, what Paul talks about in the Bible, is basically this. And you know the story. And if you don't, you should get to know it. It's great. The story is that due to the fall, our rebellion against God, we've been separated from him. That we all feel this absence of God in our lives at various points. And the fruit of that is totally clear. Warfare, prejudice, tribalism, hatred. Uh, it's funny to mention chat GPT because uh, when I hear, I'm, I'm a little bit of a cynic as an English teacher, you might imagine. Uh, when I hear people say like, oh, chat GPT will ultimately produce all these positive things. I just remember all the dialogue around the internet coming out. Do you remember when that first happened and how positive it was? Like, this is going to be the thing that unites us. And like the first time you read a comment section, it was like, oh, no, uh, that was wrong. Every good thing we come up with, we find a way to use it for evil. And because God is just, and because we just wreck this beautiful place he's made in ourselves, we justly deserve, the rebellion deserves to lose. But in his love, God sends his one and only son, Jesus, the son of God, to come on our behalf. He pays for our rebellion on the cross. He experiences the wrath and absence of God and because this debt has been paid, his life, his rightness is credited to us so that when God looks through Christ, if we fall after Christ, if he is Lord, he sees the works of Jesus. This is what it means, the legal righteousness. And this is probably what most of us think of when we say righteousness. We are made right for a holy God. Okay, this is not actually what Jesus is talking about here. I hope that doesn't confuse you, but it is true. Paul is using righteousness in one way. Jesus is talking about it in a second category. He is talking about moral righteousness. The Bible's written by different authors. They, Jesus and Paul totally agree, but they are talking about different things. What Jesus is talking about here, we can define simply as, he's talking about a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for living a pattern of life that conforms to God's will. But we still haven't solved the problem. Why does Jesus say that your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees? That's still, I mean, is this, you know, is Jesus trying to crush everyone there? Is this the equivalent of being like, hey, unless you're better at living in God's will than Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, you don't get to go to heaven. Is that what Jesus is doing? I don't think so. I don't think the point of this is to make us focus on ourselves more. I don't think Jesus is saying, well, the Pharisees are on level 42 of righteousness and you guys are on level 35, so if you do a few more good things and pray some more, maybe you can up your game to 43 and get to heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this. Why don't you pay attention to this? The Pharisees want to be righteous. 
but they do not want me, which means they don't actually want to be righteous. The Pharisees want to be righteous, but they do not want me, which means they don't actually want to be righteous. First step of a life living in conformity to God's will means love and worshiping him. God is the end point of righteousness. The Pharisees are like the guy who wants to be known as a good husband, but doesn't love and pursue his wife. They missed the point. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's not saying, try harder. He's asking a question. Do you want God? The Pharisees lorded their righteousness over everyone in a really public way. They prayed publicly so people could see them and all of this. And I think there's actually some comfort here. Jesus is saying, hey, don't play their game. You shouldn't feel inadequate around their displays of righteousness. Because when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's like, righteousness, he's like, the Pharisees don't actually do that. They may look like it, but they don't. So uh, marriage is the best example of how these two ideas, kind of legal righteousness that Paul talks about and moral righteousness come together. So the framework for marriage around the world, right, is that people have committed publicly to a person and they've given a promise of almost unconditional certainty. Their marriage is a legal reality. It's legally true. But within that framework, there's a lot of range of experiences, right? Some couples pursue each other, are companions and partners, and unfortunately, there's a lot of sad experiences within marriage too. When we say things like, they have a good marriage, we're not saying, they signed all the paperwork, so technically, the marriage is good. Uh, we're saying, within this legal commitment they've made to each other, they really honor those promises and treat each other really well. You're talking about relationship within that framework. Jesus is talking to a group of people who would all have considered themselves God's people. He's saying, blessed are those who aren't just God's people in name only, truly do love. If I haven't convinced you yet, consider this. When Jesus summarized the law, I love this so much. When Jesus summarizes the law and we read it, do you know what he says? How do you summarize all the law? And if you read through the law, in the first five books of the Old Testament, there's a lot going on, okay? And he says, oh yeah, I can summarize it really quick. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. He summarizes everything relationally. Christianity is, theology especially, is like baked into its core a relational thing. Some people get frustrated with Christianity because they really want this like abstract, separated from everything, enlightenment, I think therefore I am principle. And Christianity never sells itself that way. Never says that's what it is. It is at its core relational. We are not moving towards some abstract ideal of righteousness. We are moving towards God and our neighbor's. This has really practical application. I think you can trace it out in a lot of ways. I want to give you an example of how I think this could affect us right away. There's been a lot of debate in certain circles about how the church in the 90s handled, it's called purity culture, the idea we suddenly had an influx of a lot of really sexually explicit stuff on TV and shows and how the church responded. And it's been an interesting conversation. Some's been helpful, some hasn't. But 
One thing I've heard that I think really rings true is I think in the church there can be this desire to aim for purity, but a failure to understand that the point of that is relational. So what I mean is, if the goal is just, I just want to be pure, but it's not, I want to so I can love God and love my brothers and sisters in Christ well, then we miss the point, right? Uh, There is a way to, yeah, there's a way to instrumentalize people kind of on both sides or to dehumanize people. You can pursue purity and treat people like objects still. But if our goal is, I want to do all this because I want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ well, then suddenly I think we're heading towards the righteousness God is talking about. The point is to love each other well. This relational heart of the scripture is really good news because it means we're not called on some journey to find the Wizard of Oz who's not there or to find ourselves. We're called on a journey to pursue a loving God who, guess what, has already pursued us and accompanies us on the journey. We're hemmed in by a loving God before, behind us, and with us. So, quickly summarize. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It means to long to live a life that's more and more pleasing to God, not because you're earning his affection, but because you already have it. The point of the law is not to become awesome. It's not to help our good person resume. It's to lean into deeper affection and love. It's to be with the beloved. Okay, how is this a challenge? We're going to move quickly through these, but I think there's a challenge buried in here for those of us who struggle with complacency. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Does it describe us? Listen to this. This is from D.A. Carson. It's really good. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness then, hungers and thirsts for conformity to God's will, they're not drifting aimlessly in a sea of empty empty religion. Still less are they puttering about distracted by inconsequential trivia. Rather, their whole being echoes the prayer of a certain Scottish saint who cried, Oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. I want to tell you a story from the scriptures that I think exemplify this so well. Many of you know it really well. Uh, as I've been reading through the Gospels when I first started, um, like when I first got here, I think Mary, the story of Mary, not Jesus's mom, but Mary's sister of Martha, uh, and she didn't, I'd, I'd never kind of picked up on how amazing she is. But as you read through the Gospels, Mary is incredible. She might be the, the biggest hero outside of Jesus in the Gospels. Just read and pay attention to what Mary does. But we have this one story that so perfectly exemplifies this hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's this moment where Jesus is teaching, and it says this, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What Jesus is calling out there uh, is actually sloth. And when we hear sloth, I think we tend to think like on the sofa with a bag of Doritos kind of sloth. And that is definitely a version of it. But there's another way we can do this. And I am man guilty of this. 
Slothful can mean, basically, failing to attend to the most needful thing. Ignoring the demands of love. There's a way in which the workaholic who ignores their family is also a sloth, is being slothful. They're denying the most needful thing. And what Martha is doing in that moment, that's that line, man, if that doesn't hit you, distracted with much serving. She's doing something very good, but she's missing the most needful thing. She's missing the call to love. And I think there's some reasons that we might be complacent about sitting at the feet of Jesus the way that Mary has done. By the way, Mary did such a countercultural thing by doing that. That's part of what bothers Martha so much is Mary, by sitting there, says, like, I'm a disciple of Jesus just like these guys over here. And you can just tell uh, Martha's like, well, oh, she's breaking all the rules. Um, well, I can think of some real quick reasons why we might be complacent about this. We might have the wrong view of God. Mary sits at Jesus' feet because she knows who he is. She knows he's good. He wants her to sit there, that he has the best thing to offer her. Martha has a different view of Jesus. She actually thinks Jesus will rebuke Mary. And maybe she, and she seems a little frustrated with Jesus, like, come on, say something. And you can almost replace Jesus' lines with Martha, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if that's you, if you feel like, I don't know if I can trust this God, spend a little more time with Jesus, I think. Don't let a wrong view of God keep you from pursuing righteousness. He's good. We might have a wrong view of self. Some of you, I preached about, um, this opened with blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. And we talked a lot about that disposition of poor in spirit before God. But guess what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is set on equal plane with those things. It's just as important. Some of you are a lot more comfortable thinking about yourself as poor in spirit than pursuing righteousness. When we talk about the tax collector saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, uh, you resonate. And your spiritual life can feel a little like this. Throughout the week, you build up guilt and shame. You make it to church where you're reminded that Jesus loves you. You feel the weight of your sin, but then his love, and then you repeat this. And there's, this is close, but remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness on the same plane. They're equally important. It's true that we are sinners who need to depend on Christ for all that's good. It's true that we have to repent. But these are also some things that are true of you if you're in Christ. This is what Paul says. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And elsewhere, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, true righteousness, and holiness. That's who you are. You're a new creation. Lastly, we might be afraid to suffer. Hanging out with Jesus is dangerous. If Martha sits at the feet of Jesus, she's going to hear some things that are going to be tough. She may be confronted. She may be called to repent of prejudices she have, has. She may have to do hard things. But if she stays busy, she may be able to avoid them. Uh, I've been thinking a lot. So ChatGPT came up. I've been thinking a lot about AI and stuff because I'm a nerd, um, and terrified, a terrified nerd. Uh, there was a movie that came out a long time ago called Her, 
And at the time, it felt like, well, that's, psh, and now it's very relevant. The premise of the movie was that they created the first artificial intelligence operating system. A guy got a divorce, and he was very lonely, and he boots up this artificial intelligence and begins dating his artificial intelligence. Uh, and at one moment, he runs into his ex-wife, and they're talking about their lives, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm really happy. I'm in a relationship. I'm... Um, my, my AI, Samantha, we're, we're really close. And his ex-wife says, wait, sorry, you're dating your computer? It makes me really sad that you can't handle real emotions. And he says, they are real emotions. And then she says, you wanted to have a wife without the challenges of actually dealing with anything real. I'm glad you found someone. It's perfect. That scene nails it. There are so many ways to dull our hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's so many cheap substitutes that keep us from the demands of love. Let's not waste any more time. We have a good Jesus who's asking us to sit at his feet, who promises us the kingdom of God. Every moment we spend on something that's a cheap substitute, I think one day we'll look back and be like, man, why? Why? Did I waste that time when Christ was for me? We're called to so much, something so much greater than the world has to offer us. This is the challenge. Weirdly, actually, I think following this will make us better at loving and appreciating the world as well. But lastly, I want to end on this. How is this a comfort? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's that final line. For they shall be satisfied they shall be satisfied. There are some in Jesus' audience who do hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's been hard. They've striven to conform themselves to God's will. Every step has felt like a war. They hear the story of Jacob wrestling the angel and they're like, yeah, I get that. They see their story as described by struggle. There can be moments in our walk with Christ where we see the trajectory, where occasionally the end of the story breaks through, and you have a sudden moment where you're like, yeah, I do feel like I know Christ more, and I feel his affection more, and I'm being dragged along. But there are also moments that are really dark, and it can feel really lonely, and you wonder if you're going anywhere at all, and if maybe there is just somebody behind the curtain. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Or as Paul puts it, and I'm sure this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want to end with this little story from the Bible that I've been thinking about. There's this guy named Simeon, and in the very beginning of Luke, when we get the full story of Jesus, his birth. We get this little story, and it's this little thing that's tucked away. I love that it's there. Uh, Jesus and his family are going up to the temple. Jesus is a, is a child. And in Luke, we hear this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. I love this story because does Simeon matter in the big picture? On a human level, does Simeon matter? He doesn't even affect the story, really. But he matters deeply to God. And this moment is the ending of a life of struggle and looking forward, and he sees Jesus there in the end. And as a pastor of mine back from South Carolina once said, one hour with God will be worth a lifetime of suffering, and we have an eternity with him. Some of you carry around a, a, a tough burden, and one day what Christ is saying by they shall be satisfied is that thing that dogs you that always feels like it's on your back will be gone. That you'll look around internally and you'll, it won't be there. It will be blasted out by the love and affection of Jesus completely. We make it. And if you hear that, it immediately revolts against it. If you hear that and go, I don't, like internally, you're like, I don't know. I want you to listen again. It's not me who's saying this to you. It's Jesus. And this is not Jesus the distant. This is Jesus who is tempted as we are tempted who came for us and experiences the absence of God on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are lonely, Christ comes to be lonely with you. If you despair, we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, working up what it will take to go to the cross on your behalf. We make it. This is not the Wizard of Oz. At the end of the road, there is the divine, and he loves us deeply. So we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that Christianity is not about building resumes. It's about meeting the true God who loves us, who comes to be with us. We need you every hour, Father. It can be dark. It can be lonely. Thank you for stepping into that space with us. May everyone here feel your presence and know that you have come for them to be with them. And one day we will Rejoice the same way Simeon did when our eyes fully see you face to face. In Jesus' name.